The church should be about community. The church should be about inclusion. But often in the church, there does seem to be like quite a territorial sentiment about some of these things. But when we are so territorial about something, we think that we're seeking to make it perfect, but actually it starts to exclude. And the church is not an exclusive club. This is Expanding Horizons. Candid conversations, passionate people, important issues. Produced by the Jesuit Institute, South Africa. Janine Scott Dos Santos is mum to Owen, a superhero boy with autism. She runs her own HR business. And we're going to talk to her today about autism, the joys and challenges of being a mum to a child with special needs, and the impact this has had on her family and church life. I am Ricardo De Silva, and this is Expanding Horizons. Janine, welcome. It's great to have you here. Why don't you tell us about Owen? So Owen, as you said in the introduction, is my superhero. He is a little boy, six and a half years old. He does have autism or is autistic on the autism spectrum. There are some questions about how you should say it. For me, it's he's still just a boy, and the label just helps us to define how we can work with him rather than to define who he is. But yeah, so that's not all he is. He has a great sense of humor. He's a really loving little boy, very smart, not in the Rain Man type of way, like everyone thinks autistic people are, but he's smart in his way. And he's a lovely boy, and he's our miracle. What is autism? So autism, as you alluded to in the introduction, is a spectrum of disorders. It's a disorder that has a spectrum of symptoms, let me put it that way rather. So there's a saying that once you've met one child with autism, you've met one child with autism because it affects various parts of a person. So it affects how they interpret different sensory stimulation. So things like touch, hearing, smells, sight, all of those things affect kids with autism or people with autism. And often some of those senses are the reason why I call him a superhero. One of the reasons is because a lot of those senses are sort of like a superhero. Um, They really are very intense um, and it makes it difficult for somebody with those super senses to then process the ordinary world. So while you and I are sitting in this room, this is a recording studio, so it's a bad example because it is very quiet in here, but if we were sitting outside, there'd be birds chirping, there'd be cars on the highway, there'd be the wind blowing, and you and I would be able to focus on each other and have a conversation. For him, it would be very difficult to do that because he would be able to hear the cars on the highway, the birds chirping, the wind flowing through the trees. So it affects the senses, it affects your ability to engage socially. And one of the most notable things that it does affect often is a person's ability to communicate verbally. A lot of kids with autism can understand perfectly what's going on, but they then struggle to express themselves verbally. So it affects various parts of a person and and all in different ways. So how did you find out about Owen and his autism particularly? It's an interesting story. I grew up with lots of kids in our family. My sister had three kids that I've watched growing up, and he seemed verbally ahead of a lot of his friends. He was actually progressing ahead verbally in terms of a lot of his peers. He had a great vocabulary. He was able to to sort of write, recite cards if we gave them to him. He could do flashcards. Two words, at two years old, he knew the difference between a brinjal and a broccoli, and you know, which is quite advanced for a two-year-old, a cargo ship and a cruise ship. I mean, he really had an extensive vocabulary, which was way ahead of some of his peers. But then at about two and a half, it kind of just stopped. The progression stopped. He kept on speaking, but the progression stopped. 
And I think I realized we were at a party for one of his cousins that was about the same age as him. And the little cousin was sitting at the table and he was asking his gran about salt and pepper. And he said, what are these? And the gran said, they're salt and pepper. And he said, what do they do? And she said, you put them on to add spice to your food. And he was asking all these interesting questions. Why salt and pepper, not steak and chopped spice and cinnamon? And he was asking very interesting questions. And we got in the car and I said to my partner, I think there's something wrong with Owen. He's never asked us a question. And I was just kind of poo-pooed and she said, that's nonsense. He just doesn't have siblings. The other child has siblings and that's the reason. But we kept noticing that there were some issues. My sister is a speech therapist and I spoke to her about it, but she only ever saw him at social interactions. She wasn't with him every day. So one of the symptoms of autism is called echolalia. And what that is, is where you script an entire phrase or sentence and you'll say it in the same way every time. So I was just chatting to my sister about how I think there's a problem and he was playing with my phone and he gave the phone to me and he said, what happened? There is no sound. And my sister said, you think this child's got a problem? That was a five-word sentence that was perfect. But I knew that it was a script. I didn't know the word for script at that stage, but I knew, but that's how he says it every so you time. you heard him say that each time. Yeah. And in exactly the same way, in the same tone. But I, because I didn't have the words to explain, I didn't know the words like echolalia and scripting, etc. I didn't know how to express that to my sister. So I just said, oh, yeah, you're right. And I kind of left it. But I still kind of knew in my heart that there was there was an issue. And then eventually we went to his birthday ring at school. For those of you who don't have kids, a birthday ring is just exactly that. They make a ring, they sing happy birthday, you share cake, etc. <laughs> and it was his third birthday ring and the teacher was making jokes. And all the other kids, you could see, even if they didn't catch the joke, they picked up on the social cues that they were supposed to laugh at certain points or they were supposed to be horrified at certain points or Owen didn't. He kind of sat in the corner and he was playing with drums. He was just not in the room with the other kids. And we decided at that point that it was time to take him for an assessment. My sister recommended a really good speech therapist. We were fortunate enough that she's based five minutes from where we live. Mm -hmm. And she's still his speech therapist now four years later. And she's amazing. And she said to us, she thinks that it might just be sensory, but we should probably take him for some other assessments. And I just remember being in that room and just bursting into tears, like not understanding what was coming at us. We then went to an OT, occupational an occupational therapist. therapist gave us the same kind of, it might be sensory, but we think you should have another assessment. And I remember the speech therapist saying, I can't give a diagnosis, but I think you should get a diagnosis because then you can apply for disability rebates from SARS. And I just remember hearing like this assault of words, echolalia, scripting, disability, it was just like an assault. It was just, it was quite a traumatic day. And I actually don't really remember a lot of that day. We've kind of blanked it out. We did then end up at a psychiatrist and got an official diagnosis. Uh, psychiatrists aren't known for their bedside manner. So <laughs> she said, the thing with kids on the spectrum, oh, he is on the spectrum and carried on speaking. So that was how we got the official diagnosis. But yeah, it's, I think it was traumatic then because we didn't know. But now four years later, it's really helped me to open my eyes and see different things. And his mind is just so beautiful. And I would love to spend just five minutes inside it. Mm. There's an interesting, a lot of autism moms like get quite passionate about the fact that you can't get upset about autism because it didn't happen to you. So I agree with that. It hasn't happened to me. Has there been an effect on my life? Absolutely. There are things I get upset about. My nephews are all 
overachievers, blue blazers and prefects and all of those things. That was something that was important to me at school, academics, leadership positions, drama, public speaking. Those things were important to me at school. My partner was very sporty, so those things were important. So you do see that. I now have a little niece who's two and a half and doesn't stop talking for a second. She's also super smart and comes up with the most amazing things. So you kind of, if I said I was never envious of those things, I would be lying. But it's not my struggle, it's his. The world is harder for him than it should be. You know, for him just to have a simple, last week we had to go for some tests, an MRI and an EG, and for any other six or seven-year-old, it would have been difficult, but you could have rationalised with them and explained to them what was going to happen. For him, we had to put him to sleep because there's just no ways he would have understood an EEG process and putting things on your head and going into an MRI scan. And it's harder for him than it needs to be. The world is louder, noisier, smellier. It's an assault for him. So it's not my struggle, it's his. And I have to remind myself of that a lot. We've known each other for a while, uh, since school days, in fact. But I remember one particular thing, which was a video you put up of him having a haircut and the assault on his senses. It made it very clear to me. Won't you describe that, the whole process of a simple haircut? Sure. I get quite emotional because it is very traumatic for him. So, you know, a haircut, if all your senses were on hyperdrive, just think of what a haircut would feel like. The scissors would be loud because it's right next to your ear. The smell of the hairdresser, and most hairdressers smoke, wear perfume then to cover up the smoke because they know they're near people, chew gum, and all of those things, the smelly gum, the smelly perfume, the smelly cigarettes, just that's the sound, the feeling of hair falling onto your skin. A lot of autistic people like to control their environment, so things that are unpredictable for them become quite scary because they don't always know how they're going to react in an unpredictable situation. So they like to keep loads of control in their environments. So you'll see, for example, autistic people like to line things up or will keep everything neat. And so imagine needing everything to be neat and tidy and then having hair fall onto your body. That's a mess. And then the feeling of that hair. So Owen can't handle a label in the back of his pants. We have to cut off all his labels. He doesn't like to have a blanket on his bed. Now he's got hair all over his body. He can't move it. It's in his face. It's in his eyes. And he just absolutely is, when I say he's terrified of a haircut, just absolutely terrified. And we've tried different things. We've tried to cut his hair ourselves. We've tried to take him, so my aunt is a hairdresser. She's so far been the best with him because she's patient and because Maybe he screams as much, but we don't pay that much attention to it because it's in her garden at her house. But we've tried all sorts of things to try and make him feel brave. We've watched videos about it. But it's just such an absolutely frightening experience for him because it is an assault on his senses. What about schooling? You had to move him out of what we would call a mainstream school. So he was in a mainstream, normal, for lack of a better word, nursery school. And they were very sweet, and they wanted to keep him. He had such an amazing teacher there. But it just, firstly, at that stage, we didn't understand the extent of his needs. So we were still kind of considering it. As we've worked with him, we've realized that there's just no ways that that would have worked. But even at that time, even if his needs were just a little bit more special than anyone else's, it wouldn't have been fair to the 25 other kids in the class. So we then moved him into a special needs nursery school where there were six kids in a class, also in our area. 
And that didn't work for Owen. In fact, we were quite disappointed when the school called us in and basically told us that he was unteachable, which isn't true. We just have to find the right way to teach him. While he was at that school, we started a process called ABA, which stands for Applied Behavioural Analysis. It has a bad reputation because it has been used abusively, but that's not how we use it, and that's not how our school uses it. While he was at the previous special needs nursery school, we did it as an extramural, and then we moved him into ABA full-time. It was expensive, but we found the money and made it work. And what that is, it's a repetitive way of teaching someone. So it's pretty much him and a tutor, or two kids and a tutor, and they run a program that is very specialised just to their needs. There's various aspects to it. So there's precision teaching, which is works on their processing speed and helps them to process really quickly. Then there's discrete trial, where they'll learn new words and new vocabulary and new concepts. And through that, we're working with him to try and get him to get to a place where we can potentially get him into at least a remedial school. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work at this stage. We're kind of just leaving it up to God. Have you seen significant improvements through ABA? Yes, absolutely. So it is mostly focused on behaviour, but because that's where we're sending him to school, we've worked with the principal on an IEP, which is an individualised education programme, where we are looking at some concepts that would come out in a grade naught and grade one curriculum. But it mainly focuses on behaviour, and we've definitely seen some great improvements in his ability to just handle social situations. He used to go to my sister's house and just, we don't know what it was at my sister's house. We think that there was a picture of Amsterdam, and really what it is, it's a collection of Dutch postage stamps. So it's not a whole picture. It's a one big poster, but it's just a whole lot of little pieces. And I don't think he could make sense of that. And we think that's what has caused the issues. But he used to scream every time we got to my sister's house, just go into a proper meltdown. And a meltdown is not a temper tantrum. It's a place where you just cannot rationalize with him. He's not in his own space. And he knows that he's in a meltdown. And he knows when he's come out of a meltdown that he's behaved in a way that wasn't appropriate, but he can't help himself. And since we've been going to ABA, I think it could also have come with maturity and realising that there is no danger at my sister's house. He's managed to deal with those social situations. I come from a big Mediterranean family. He handles the Mediterranean family much better than he used to be able to in the past. And we were able to do much more things with him. We went to the Stackfontein Caves last week. And I said to the people who were buying the tickets, I said, don't get him a ticket for the caves. And then we said, okay, well, let's just try. What's the worst that can happen? We waste 50 rand. And he went in. He had no issues. He was scared. But what we've learned from a book that we read, um, A Boy Made of Blocks, the father tells the boy it's an adventure. And so what we do with him now is we just say it's an adventure. And he's understood that an adventure is something that's fun and it will be exciting, but it might be a little bit scary, but we'll look after him and we'll keep him safe. And if we say this is going to be an adventure, you can actually feel his little heart beating at a million miles an hour, but you can feel he's pushing through. When we flew to England, we had to explain to him. We showed him pictures before we left. We're going to England. This is what it's going to look like. We showed him pictures of the passport control. We're going to stand in a long queue. We're going to be tired. We're going to sit on the aeroplane, but you can play your tablet. And what we've realized is if we just preface that with, but it's going to be an adventure, he gets it. It seems to be an enormous gift in this for you in terms of just preparing for something. You can't simply go head first into something. You have to prepare for it yourselves. Yes, I think so. I'm not a very prepared person. 
I like to do things at the last minute. I like to rush things. I feel like if we weren't meant to use the last minute, it wouldn't have been invented. So <laughs> I do like to live life kind of a little bit more spontaneous, and this has helped me to slow down. I also am cursed with the inability to say no. And Owen's taught me that sometimes you have to say no. Sometimes we just can't go to events. Sometimes we have to just bow out of certain things that will be too much for him. And that's also taught me that it's okay to slow down. It's okay to live in the present. But what it's also done, because I have a personality that is spontaneous, it's also taught him that not everything can be prepared Life is not predictable. Life is not a schedule. Life is not routine. And so while we will try and stick to as much of a routine as we can to keep him feeling safe, when there are changes, he can't go into a meltdown because it's an adventure. And our society, how receptive are we as a society to children with autism? Again, I remember you talking on your blog or perhaps it was a Facebook post about going to a restaurant and he had a meltdown and people simply didn't understand it or were disrespectful. I have a little blog, for those of you who are listening, called Autism More Than a Diagnosis. It's just a Facebook blog. Autism, A-W-E-T-I-S-M. Correct. And I suppose one of the reasons why I started it was to sort of educate. Mostly it was really just a cathartic experience for myself. I just wanted to share funny stories. I have loads of family overseas and wanted to share the funny stories with them. But it became more popular. And I think I'm using that blog to, I think, create a bit of awareness. But I definitely think... There is much more awareness of autism now than there ever has been in the past. But I do think people struggle sometimes. He doesn't understand social rules, so he'll push in on the line. And we have to be cognizant of that all the time because I've had parents scream at him without understanding. They don't intend to be unaccepting of autism, but it is hard to explain why this big seven-year-old boy is pushing in front of the three-year-olds and four-year-olds to jump off the slide or whatever the case may be. And we do obviously always, when we see it, we call him back, we explain, we teach him, no, you can't do that. But he doesn't always understand the social implications of why you have to stand in a line or why you should play. So I think society in general is quite accepting as soon as they understand. But certainly you do get looks. There's a lot of kids who wear T-shirts that say, I'm not naughty, I'm autistic. And I think, and this is going to come across terribly, but a lot of autistic kids, most autistic kids look normal. I don't know how to say that in a more diplomatic way, but, you know, he looks, I mean, I'm allowed to say this, he's quite a good looking little kid. Um, so it's not easy to see. So when he does scream in a restaurant or he went through a phase about two years ago where he would just scream. So something I haven't spoken about yet is something called stimming. And stimming is short for self-stimulatory behavior. What that does is it helps an autistic person to kind of just take control of their senses. So they'll tap or flap, or in this case, own was screaming. And it helps them to just calm their senses down and feel like a release. And actually, I wish we could all just scream sometimes. It would actually be quite releasing. And that was his stim for a short while. It felt like an eternity, but it was probably about six months. We'd be in a restaurant or a shopping center or at a movie, and he would just belt out this blood-curdling, ear-piercing scream. And it's very difficult to explain to people around you why you're pretty normal, at that stage, five-year-old was screaming for nothing. People accept it from tiny babies, but not from a five-year-old. So then you have to explain. And we often have arguments, uh, my partner and I, as to whether we should explain or not. And I feel like it's my role to educate and I should explain. And she's like, who cares what people think? Share one of those funny, lighthearted moments with us. 
Owen goes to swimming on a Saturday morning, and at swimming a couple of weeks ago, so he has a script. We read The Emperor's New Clothes, and at one stage, The Emperor is naked. And we always have a joke because, as much as he's autistic, he is just a five year old or a six year old. And so, whenever we see The Emperor's bum, we say, Oh, we can see his bum. And that's a script we now have. And we were at swimming a couple of weeks ago, and it was really cold. And so the daddy decided to change the baby in the pool so that the child would change in the warmth of the warm water. Um, and so they took the baby's nappy off, and Owen, loud for the whole swimming center to hear, said, Oh, we can see her bum. <laughs> <laughs> it was rather embarrassing. <laughs> We've spoken about societies, and your blog really made me think very much about how our church responds to children or people with special needs and those with disabilities. I'm often aware that we are not as conscious as we can be. You know, in many parishes now, you will see sign language interpreters. But that's not enough. And certainly for somebody like Owen, that's not going to do it. As a faithful Catholic that you are, how have you sought to bring Owen into the faith? So it's interesting because obviously he's now reaching the age, his peers are in grade one. He should be at catechism. So I think it's twofold. I think the blog you're referring to kind of links to the society thing where we were in church and he started to script in church. And I come from a parish, I grew up in a parish that was very community focused. I think it's because we were blessed in that parish to have Father Barney for a very long time who believes in community, who believes in people. And I think he created a culture in the parish of community. And so it was very community-based. And when I moved out of the South and when a lot of people moved away from that parish for various reasons, they built other churches, that community kind of sort of dispersed. So I think the parish that I'm in now is less community-focused, but I have been in that parish for 10 years. And so that precedes Owen. And I feel like there's not as much of a community in this parish as there has been in my previous parish. And I feel like if there was a community, then Owen scripting in the middle of a mass would not get looks of derision because people would know. And I feel like I've been going to the same parish for 10 years and I've tried other parishes, so it's not exclusive to this parish. You kind of go and you're just a person in the church. And that's very hard for me as someone who was a catechist, who was an altar server. You know, I've been involved in my church and that's important for me. So I think if there was more of a sense of community, that would go a long way in terms of creating an inclusive environment. So I think that's the first thing. I think just a sense of community and knowing the people that you go to church with. I was always brought up to understand that the church isn't the building, it's the people. And I really believe that when I was growing up, but I don't know if that's still the case. And I don't know if it's because the world has become more disconnected, but it's it's not exclusive to one parish. I've tried to go to various different parishes. So I think that's the first thing. And then from a more formal perspective, obviously I'd like to get him into some kind of catechesis. And that's proved like a real struggle for me. There is a movement called SPREAD, Special Religious Educational Development, and that's run by Sister TM, and it's a really amazing program. My experience of SPREAD has been that, so in 2005, I went to the World Youth Day with some really good friends, and they ran a SPREAD. And those friends run a SPREAD in the South, and now have taken that. One of them's moved to Florida, and he runs it at Florida, and they are very involved in SPREAD. And that's been my exposure to SPREAD before I even knew that I was going to need SPREAD in my life. And I've seen some really amazing things. In fact, my nephew was confirmed about three or four weeks ago, and his best friend's brother has grown through spread. 
and the brother was confirmed with his brother at this massive confirmation. So it has done some really amazing things, and it is an amazing program. The problem with it, in my experience, and I can only speak from my experience, and this is in no ways trying to criticise, I can only speak about my own experience, but the problem that I've experienced with it is that it is quite labour-intensive. So it requires loads of volunteers in order to make it work. It requires one-on-one education and tutoring. So Owen would be called a special friend and he would have a special friend that worked with him. So they would, if they were doing the story of Jonah and the whale, they'd each have an exercise and each child would then have an exercise that was right for their level, for their ability, for their understanding. But they would all be learning about Jonah and the whale at the same time. So if there are six special friends or six kids with special needs in a church, you would need six volunteers plus a coordinator. And that just seems quite labor intensive. I think it's great. And I think that is the ideal way to run it. But I do worry that, so there's no space. I'm happy to take him to the South where my friends are are running it, but there hasn't up to this point been a space for him. I have looked at other parishes. Eventually, I got a call about six months into the process where I was trying to get spread into our parish. And I think the main reason why I want to get spread into our parish is because of that community thing. I want to create a community. I want to create support. I think that's how it started. Right now, I just want to get my kid to learn about Jesus. Like That's where I am now because it's been two years of trying. But I then got a call to say that there is a space for him at 3 o'clock in the afternoon in Rosebank, which is about 25, 30 kilometers from where I stay. And it's just not practical. So people are trying to make a difference, but it's... I've just come up to loads of obstacles trying to get spread into my own church. I spoke to the people who run spread, uh, was in direct contact with Sister TM, but it just seems like there's just been so many kind of obstacles to try and get it done. And I think it might be because it's quite labor intensive. And also there's quite a few restrictions on it. So I wouldn't actually be allowed to be involved because I'm Owen's mom. My mom was a catechist for many years. My sister was a catechist. They've both volunteered, but the rules say that they can't. So, yeah, I'm just wondering if there are perhaps out-of-the-box ways that we can try and get these kids to get into some kind of group where we can teach them, even if all we do is learn songs. You know, my boy goes to bed every night with his crucifix and his teddy bear. Hmm. He has a love for Jesus that I don't know if he understands it. I don't know if his love for Jesus is the same as his love for Chase from Paw Patrol. But then is it the same for any other three or four-year-old? And he says his prayers every night and he's learned them off by heart because it's now become a script. But does he understand and can we not encourage that love for Jesus that he has some other way? So did you teach him that, to take the cross with him? Did you teach him the prayers? Yeah, so I mean, I've taught him the same prayer that we said with my mother every night, which was good night, sweet Jesus, good night, holy mother, good night, all the angels and saints, you have to say all like that. Please help me to be a good boy and help me to sleep well right through the night. And so he knows that off by heart, he says it every night. But since then, we've obviously now we say thank you, Jesus, and we pray for things. He doesn't pray back because I don't think he understands and he can't express himself verbally but I think he's starting to understand and he likes that time of prayer with us and because we've spoken about Jesus and he understands that the crucifix is Jesus he asks for Jesus when we start to pray. And your experience in the formal structures of the church you know have you spoken to the parish priest have you spoken to other priests Yes, yeah, so I have tried. 
I've tried to get a meeting with our parish priest. That has been impossible. I've sent him a mail to the parish secretary. I've tried to speak to him out of church. I feel like it should be easier, but it's just been very difficult. I was the closest we've come, and I started this journey in October 2017. So it's been a, almost two years of just trying to get it right, and I just kept being blocked all the time, and I didn't understand why. I do think that it could be individual to our parish, but the closest I've gotten is that I was put in touch with the catechist, the head of catechism, and she then put me in touch with someone who understands spread and who's worked with spread. And our next step was going to be that we were going to then speak about spread at masses, but then that was denied and we were allowed to put a message in the weekly magazine. It sounds like you've gone through extraordinary <laughs> <laughs> lengths to afford your child something which most children just have as a matter of routine. You sign up for catechism at the beginning of the year, and that's just expected. And I hear your frustration, and I know you're trying to contain it, but when are we going to allow all children to come to Jesus? Because he says, let the children come to me. Yeah. You were talking about the exclusion. I mean, what impact does this have on your own faith that your child is being excluded effectively? It's been an interesting journey for me. There have been a number of things in my history. So I've, as you mentioned earlier, I've grown up in the church, and the church has always been an important part of my life. And I'm loyal. I often stay at things longer than I should. And it does start to make me wonder if that's what I'm doing. I remember the first time I felt this, and it was a very emotionally charged situation, and it's got nothing to do with special needs, but I remember the first time feeling like this was my uncle died tragically. And we got to the church early and he was my godfather. He was single, he had no children. So I was closer to him than most people are to their fathers. And we got to the church and they hadn't taken the candles out that are supposed to surround the coffin. They hadn't dressed the altar. They hadn't. And I just thought, wow, like we've been in this church for years. My grand used to run sessions at the church. Like we've been involved in this church and now we need you. And we don't get it. And I understand it was an emotionally charged situation, but I remember that was the first time feeling like, wow, guys, after all we've done, like now it's time to give back. And there have been some other issues in my life where I felt like that. But I think this thing, it is making me feel like, what else should I do here? And we've suggested different things. My sister works with special needs kids. She's a speech therapist, as I mentioned. I have a teaching degree. I've been a catechist. As I mentioned, my mom and my sister have both been catechists. And so I've said, is there no way that we can put something together where even we run a special class? And it's just been met with obstacle after obstacle. And I don't understand why. And the only thing I can think, which is what I don't want to believe, is that it's just too much effort. And I don't want to believe that. I can't believe that this can be that it's just too much effort. And I'm willing to give the effort, not just for my own kid. I'm going to push you. Why can't you believe that? Because it's the church and the church should be about community. The church should be about inclusion. I do feel that often in the church there are sodalities or communities or these special vocations that people have. And there does seem to be like quite a territorial sentiment about some of these things. And the problem with that territorial sentiment is that I understand it, I get it. You want it to be ideal. You want it to be the way it was intended. But when we are so territorial about something, we think that we're seeking to make it perfect, but actually it starts to exclude. It becomes exclusive. And the church is not an exclusive club. 
And that's not who we are in South Africa. We are an inclusive community. And I wrote an article for Spotlight a little while ago about maybe we make Jesus in our own image. So maybe because I feel like we should be inclusive, I see Jesus as inclusive. But, I mean, there's evidence. Like, he sat with the prostitutes. He looked after the lepers. He was inclusive. So we should do the same. So what does the church need to do, in your view, to allow children like Owen to be afforded the opportunity of basic catechesis? And the sacraments, the opportunity to receive the sacraments. That's my biggest thing. Like, will Owen ever make his first communion? So, yes, I think we need to be more creative about how we're going to make this work. We need to seek to be less exclusive. I completely get the principles behind spread, but it's not working for everybody because there are not enough people who are willing to give up their time or who can give up their time. So what other things can we do? What other things can we put in place? How do you get something like that then ratified? So if I am going to create a special needs catechism class, how do I get that curriculum ratified, put through the church? Who do I speak to? So firstly, I think we need to advertise spread more. I think if more people understood what it was and knew about it, I don't think anyone even knows about it. So I think that if more people knew about it, we could get more volunteers, we'd have more children wanting to be part of it, and adults wanting to be part of it. Autism and special needs don't stop when you reach 21. But I also think we need to be creative and say, if it's not spread, are there alternatives? So giving some thought to that format, have you thought about it? What would an out-of-the-box format possibly look like for special needs children? I mean, I think it would be very similar to what a special needs class looks like. I think it would be small, five or six kids maximum per class. So similar to what they do in Spread where they take a story or something. But I think we would take a concept and teach it in the way that the kids need to learn to understand it. You probably would still need one person and an assistant in a class so that one person could be teaching while the other person was making it happen. But I think that we would look at ways of teaching that are more appropriate. So it wouldn't be 30 kids in a class and a teacher standing at a board like the catechism that I went to. It would be different, but it would be smaller and we would use aids. There are tons of apps. I've searched tons of apps. America, Australia, the UK, those guys are way ahead of us with regards to technology. And we'd be able to make use of that. And actually, that's now what I'm doing is I've downloaded apps. Mm. But he's not going to make his first communion through an app. So I'm going to sort of advertise that if there are people listening to us and they are impelled, have felt themselves impelled by what you've said, they have special needs children themselves or they have a particular desire to work with special needs children, they should get in touch with us here at the Jesuit Institute or through Expanding Horizons. They can email us info at jesuitinstitute.org.za and we'll pass those contacts on to you. And hopefully we can find a way of including children like Owen in our worship and in our catechesis so that they truly are part of we are church. We are all the people of God. I think that would be great. You know, having a special needs child can also become quite lonely. So when you have your baby and you go to nursery school, then all those parents, you become friends with them. Those kids then all go to the same soccer club, the same nursery school, the same school, and those parents become friends. With special needs, you don't have that community, either because you have to move school so often or because you're going to a school so far away or just because you're so exhausted by the time the weekend comes that you don't have time to go see someone or your kids can't see other people. And I think creating a community within our church of parents with special needs kids, I think it will be helpful for our kids because they'll be exposed to catechesis, but I think it will provide a really great opportunity for a community of special needs moms and dads who can then pray together, talk together, work together, understand each other. 
scream and at a each wider other. community that's sensitive to special needs around them. Absolutely. So, Janine, in your experience of being mum to superhero Owen, how do you see that experience as being one that expands the horizons of hope? I mean, I think for me personally, it's taught me to be much less judgmental because you never know what anybody else is going through. And I think through that, as you mentioned, I write a lot and I've been able to write and talk and understand a lot of what other people are going through. And so I started a little blog, mainly to share the stories, as I mentioned earlier, with my family overseas. The blog is Autism, A-W-E-T-I-S-M, More Than a Diagnosis, and you can find it on Facebook. And I started that more as a, a cathartic experience for myself and to share some funny stories with my family. But it's gained a bit of momentum. We have over 600, almost 700 followers at the moment. And it's almost made me like a... So people kind of look to me for autism answers now, or they share stories with me about autism. And a lot of people follow the blog that don't have any experience with autism, but have said it's helped them to expand their horizon and to understand different things. Through the blog, I've also met loads of people who I've had coffee with who said, my child's just been diagnosed. What do I do next? And so I spend time with them, counseling them, and just saying it's actually going to be an amazing journey and that this is not something to be feared. It's just different. And I think hopefully the blog, my stories, my ability to talk about this expands hope in other people that kind of look at the diagnosis as a death sentence. Thank you, Janine. Thank you. Please comment and subscribe to our podcast for more candid conversations, passionate people, and important issues. Expanding Horizons is produced by the Jesuit Institute South Africa with music and sound by Francis Tucson. This episode was presented by Ricardo De Silva. Visit us at www.jesuitinstitute.org.za.